You're listening to locally produced programming created in KUNV Studios on public radio, KUNV 91.5. The content of this program does not reflect the views or opinions of 91.5 Jazz and More, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, or the Board of Regents of the Nevada System of Higher Education. Welcome to The Pivot Point, where we talk about all things pivot, all things business, and all things Vegas. I'm your host, Bardia. Let's get the ball rolling. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another exciting episode of The Pivot Point. I'm so thrilled today because I have one of the coolest professors I've ever met in my career sitting with me today. Her name is Dr. Payal Sharma. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. You have such an extensive and inspiring career. You've been visiting faculty at Wharton School of Business and faculty at Rutgers Newark and New Brunswick. Um, Can you tell us your story? And how did you get to UNLV? Sure. I've been a professor for almost 12 years. My PhD was at the University of Maryland College Park. And prior to UNLV, I was on the East Coast for about 15 years at the institutions you mentioned. I was trained in a discipline called organizational behavior, which means I'm an organizational psychologist. I study the psychology of work life. And Throughout my career, I've always been fascinated by power dynamics in organizations. So that's really where I spend a lot of time thinking and studying and reading and writing. Some of my specialty areas include leadership in different organizational settings. Yes. So some of your interests that I read about, uh, like you just mentioned, are organizational power, masculinity, and workplace mistreatment. Um, Recently, I learned from being in class with you, that you conduct the studies on the NFL and major players in the hip hop and rap industry. So can you provide us an overview of what you see in the power dynamics? and that you've observed in these industries. Sure. And as context, I was brand new to the world of professional sports when my NFL research lifted off about 14 year, fourteen months ago. And that means I knew very little about the NFL or the world of professional football. That project has been probably one of the richest experiences for me in having a front row seat to power in the league. That research project has allowed me to interview more than 70 current and former general managers, club presidents, different executives on the football and business sides of the teams, players, staff members, folks from the NFL office and the Players Association, and then those in ancillary roles such as journalists, financial advisors, and the like. And some of the descriptors we've heard is that the NFL, unlike the NBA, is an owner's league. We've been told that it's a 32 cartel system. That's one of the more vivid descriptions that have come up in the interviews that I've done. And what we've seen is that, you know, much of what we know about power exists in the NFL, that there's a few people at the top who control this billion dollar industry. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest, shiniest object, in my opinion, in popular culture. That's that's amazing. So how did you get to this point? Did you always know you wanted to study the NFL or how did you say, I want to study the NFL and rappers? Yeah, it's a question I get asked a lot of. And the NFL project has a more sobering starting point. It started, as I mentioned, last year. 
And in the lead up, I had been having conversations with one of my two collaborators, Katina Sawyer. She's a professor down in Arizona. And we had been chatting virtually for a few months after an introduction by a mutual colleague and friend. And we were brainstorming project possibilities. Along the way, I lost two important people to me. My mentor, Seagal Barsade from Wharton, died of brain cancer after a year of diagnosis. She was in her 50s. And then my boxing instructor here in town at True Fusion, Tim Lane, committed suicide. And their deaths happened within a few days of each other. And no one should have to do what I ended up experiencing, which was two celebrations of life or funeral services in the same 24 hour mm -hmm. period. In the aftermath, and part of my research in the past has focused on stress and trauma, I knew I was having a really hard time functioning, and I decided to pick up my iPad, <laughs> and I went to Google, and I typed in NFL. Now, this was about February awesome. and March of last year. That was when Deshaun Watson was in the news, you know, being hired by the Browns. Uh, Flo was in the news, Brian Flores, for the discrimination lawsuit he brought against the NFL. And my academic brain was able to focus and to anchor on these fascinating stories. Again, these are folks who at that time I knew very little about. Katina and I saw each other in March of last year at a conference at Purdue University, which is in West Lafayette, Indiana. And the first night of the conference, we were chatting, sitting at a table with another colleague. And I turned to Katina and I said, I want to study the NFL. And she said, let's do it. Then the next day, I took an Uber from Purdue back to the Indianapolis airport, which was about an hour and a half ride. And I had a doctoral student from another school come with me. Our Uber driver ended up being former NFL. Oh, my God. And it was meant to be. That's how it felt. <laughs> I interviewed this Uber driver for 90 minutes, and it's ironic because I went back just this week to my original interview transcripts, and literally line by line, the way he described the NFL, how he described the power dynamics, how he guided me in terms of anticipating some of the gender dynamics that I would mm -hmm. experience, sure. line for line, all of that became a reality over the past year. Absolutely. So let's just get a broad definition. What is power to you? It's an important question because whenever I give talks about power or I teach classes to executives or undergrads, I always want to clarify what power is and more importantly, what it's not. Power in the management research often is a function of your dependence on others around you in your organization or their dependence on you. It exists only in the context of a relationship. In other words, power is a social force. Other buzzwords that come to mind include control over resources, the extent to which you have influence in your organization. Whenever I talk about power, I like to emphasize, you know, we hear sometimes on social media or in lay terms, claim your power. That's actually conceptually inconsistent mm -hmm. with the definition of power. When you're claiming what it is that people actually mean, it's probably more your confidence, uh, your, you know, ability to communicate. And so I like to distinguish that power, again, is a social force. It exists when you're in a relationship with another party at work. Right. 
Exactly. And so most of your research I have seen is more qualitative. Um, now for a layman like myself, who has little to no experience in that, or mo I've mostly seen quantitative research um, in terms of numbers and biological, you know, articles, things like that. So what is qualitative research? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Quantitative research uses numbers as the basis of data. So in my field, people will collect survey data. They will engage in lab experiments. That's usually how we're socialized to think about mm -hmm. research because there's a lot of quantitative studies out there. I discovered my love of qualitative research uh, when I was an undergraduate student at UC San Diego, my majors were anthropology and history. And so back in the day, I would be reading ethnographies for my undergraduate classes in these majors. Qualitative research uses language as the basis of the data. For the NFL research, as well as the video model project on the rap game, I conducted interviews. I also conducted in, um, observations at mm -hmm. various events and venues across both industries. And on top of the interviews and observations, we also analyze archival records. Mm -hmm. And examples of those include documentaries, popular press articles, academic articles, nonfiction sources that can help us develop a deeper knowledge of the context. Yes. And I, I feel like it kind of trickles into the articles we see every day, um, whether it's on the news or any news outlets that you see articles or like it's sent to your inbox every day. How can someone expose themselves or just see how qualitative research affects us every day? That's an interesting question. And something I always try to educate people on when it comes to qualitative research is that our role as scholars is to understand the lived experiences of those around us. And we do so going in clean slate, unbiased, mm -hmm. We try to really absorb the realities of people's lives as they see them. And I would encourage folks who are listening to this podcast to ask themselves, how can they be better listeners when people share about yes. what they believe their realities to be? You know, part of our training in qualitative research methods is that we don't have to agree with what our informants, as the name is used, describe or what they talk about. I'll interview, you know, guys in the NFL who might have views that are different than my own. Mm -hmm. But my job is to pause and to simply absorb like a sponge. And so I encourage people when you're interacting with colleagues or people in your life outside of work or reading articles in the press, try to adopt that stance of understanding what the other person is describing. Exactly. So I want to touch on a little bit of the research you do on the NFL, because um, we um, normally see it as sort of a hypermasculine industry and something you research is masculinity as well. So is there anybody who is challenging the current notions that we see in these industries or any ch challenging the traditional notions of masculinity and leadership? I love this question. And one of the greatest gifts of being deeply embedded in the NFL for 14 mm -hmm. months is I always get text messages and emails and DMs on LinkedIn from friends and colleagues and informants updating me on news happening in the NFL. And during the time that I was immersed in the league, there were a number of historic events that made the news. To answer your question more directly, when DeMar Hamlin suffered the cardiac arrest last mm -hmm. year on the field, that was a moment for the 
the league, for the teams, the players, the coaches who are on that field to really pause and try to process their emotional responses and how they were thinking and feeling, witnessing what was a traumatic mm -hmm. event. I remember I read an article that interviewed a cardiac surgeon who said, even for the surgeon who has been in their field for years, watching cardiac arrest will shake you. Right. And what I was fascinated by was the decision points of the players and the coaches to speak up and to not let the game continue. Mm -hmm. We know that there was a little bit of a different response from the NFL office initially. More broadly, it's been interesting to see how people have demonstrated their own vulnerability. In other words, how the men have talked about how they process seeing what happened to DeMar, certainly through DeMar's own stories in the press and the wonderful ways he's communicated with us about his recovery, that's all indicating that masculinity can subsume being vulnerable, being emotionally expressive. And I have to say that when we mm -hmm. saw, you know, the controversy around Tua and the concussion, that was also another example where you have a sport that we know involves a lot of hits, but these men are actually thinking and processing and sharing with us their experiences yes. within that masculine culture. Absolutely. And I think that what your research touches on, most importantly, is just awareness of all of these aspects of our lives and that we see in these industries and how our personality kind of is applied to our leadership positions as well. So even if we, even if people listening, you know, you don't work in the NFL or you're not spitting bars as a rapper or anything like that, how can you connect these ideas to your own workplace? Yeah, I think awareness is a important point. And the word I like to use a lot in my talks is agency, that we all have choice. We do have control as adults in terms of the ways that we show up in our work lives. And I do think there's value in sometimes pushing the pause button and asking ourselves, you know, what moments in our day made us uncomfortable? What moments in our day made us comfortable? How can you work through the latter and help that actually be a catalyst for your own growth and your development. I'll give you an example. You know, being a professor, we collaborate with colleagues across the country and world, and inevitably there's going to be conflicts. Mm -hmm. I'm fortunate where in my professional network and support system, I have other colleagues whose opinions I trust. So when I feel discomfort in those conflicts, I will go to those trusted advisors and talk through those situations. And to me, my advisors have been my greatest teachers. Yes. In turn, I trickle this down to podcasts, classes, talks with executives, across different sectors. And so I think it's important to ask yourself, what are your needs? Where can you find healthy sources of support? And hopefully in turn, you can be that for others around you. Yes, I love that one time you mentioned in class and it completely reframed my idea of the living situation. Um, you talked about how coming home, um, you know, you are um, a family, you have parents and kids, your kids come home from school and you ask them, how, how was your day? Instead, what you should probably be asking them is, what made you happy today? What made you sad today? What was unexpected? What, what surprised you? And that completely changed my thinking of, how did I feel today? How did I apply myself to the day? And what did the day look like for me? So I feel like that it kind of starts at the house. 
I agree. And that tactic of asking about aspects of your day anchored in emotions comes from my colleague and friend, Shimal Milwani. She's the professor Mm -hmm. who studies emotions at UNC Chapel Hill. And I can tell you the research suggests that men are socialized to express pride and anger as the Mm -hmm. only emotions at work that we deem acceptable. On the flip side, if we see a man cry in a professional context, that's one of the biggest strikes against that man because he's doing the worst thing possible, according to gender stereotypes and research, which is he's acting like a woman. Right. So how, why do you think that is? Do you think this is uniform in in America or... I'm just curious in a global perspective. I always try to relate it back to, do other countries work this way? Does business look different in other countries? How how do you think it looks in other countries? Gert Hofstede is a cross-cultural researcher. And in the 1980s, he studied hundreds of thousands of employees at IBM and developed a typology of cultural values that typify different countries. Mm -hmm. There are some nations, I believe Norway is one of them, who are more feminine. Mm -hmm. And so their definition of masculinity is likely going to be perhaps broader than what we might conceptualize in the States, which is known to be a more masculinized society. I will tell you that I do believe gender stereotypes not only, you know, manifest in the home, but they permeate all layers and levels of society. To give you a few examples, as stereotypes, we expect that men will do uh, head work, so the thinking, and women will do caretaking or body work. In other words, men are the breadwinners and women are the nurturers. And as you know, we had a student in our class who was raised in a family where his mother socialized him quite differently and his mother behaved in counter-normative ways and that has actually broadened his mental models or cognitive schemas on gender and the expectations that we have. Why is this relevant for me as an organizational psychologist? Well, I study what happens when men show up at work and they break or defy gender stereotypes and fundamentally we know that they're punished, that they experience social and economic sanctions including being less liked, by men and women both, so the Mm -hmm. genders are equally discriminatory. They're viewed as derailing their careers when they defy gender stereotypes, and they're viewed as being less hireable and having less potential for leadership roles. Now, the contrast and the tension is that when I ask executives or undergraduates or pretty much anyone, what do you want in your leader in Mm -hmm. terms of value traits? We know that we want leaders who are compassionate and relatable and approachable. The tension is men are often punished at work for exhibiting those very same traits that we value in leaders. Absolutely. Do you recommend any books? What are your favorite books on these topics? Gosh, that's a great question. And I usually read more academic articles, so I'm a little less well-versed in sort of popular press books. I do know that You know, when I listen to podcasts, for example, about the NFL, I'm always tuned in to when men are disclosing emotions or displaying counter stereotypical behaviors. And so although I don't know books off the top of my head, I do encourage listeners to notice when you're around a man or a woman, if they identify as such, you know, how are you responding to them and to see if you can sort of double click on your own schemas as data for you to think about? Yeah, absolutely. So I have some fun questions for you. Um, if you were anybody in the hip hop and rap industry, who would you be and why? 
Gosh, that might be one of the best and most unique questions I've ever been asked. I don't actually tell most people this, but when I was younger in college, I grew up listening to The Game, Nas, Mob Deep, Tupac and Biggie, of course. I always dreamt of being a rap music producer, and I think that's who I would want to be now. And we interviewed some producers who we keep anonymous because of research and ethical guidelines. I think that's the role because I think I would want to taste some power, but I'd still want to also taste the creative side. I also used to have a joke. So I actually, uh-huh. it's great. I'm revealing this on a public podcast. <laughs> I actually have this skill where I can listen to a hip hop or rap song. And within the first five to 15 seconds, I can tell you whether or not I think it's going to blow up. Wow. <laughs> You are, you're probably an asset to the industry right now. That's an amazing skill to have. <laughs> That's one skill set the game has not, the industry has not leveraged. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. I would probably pick, uh, I don't know, Cardi B. <laughs> My name is kind of similar to hers. <laughs> Cardi B, Bardia, Bardi, I don't know. But she's, she's, using, she's amazing. Yes. Um, are you excited about the Super Bowl coming to Las Vegas next year? You know, Las Vegas is undergoing such a transformation. LeBron might be bringing an NBA team. We have Formula One coming, now the Super Bowl. To me, the Super Bowl is the next step, logically, in this ascension of Las Vegas becoming one of the premier sports cities in the world, right? Rivaling New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco. And so I'm thrilled for the city of Las Vegas that they have this opportunity. Interesting fun fact, one of my NFL NFL informant said the NFL basically writes a check to the Raiders and then takes over the stadium and all the planning. Wow. Mm-hmm. wow. That is so interesting. Oh, my God. And so I completely agree with you. I'm so excited about F1 and the NFL. Um, you know, the whole idea of sports in Vegas was such was so distant when I was growing up. I never expected any of that to come to Vegas. But it kind of makes us a real city now. We have our own teams. Ironically, a lot of them are from Oakland. Uh, so um, uh, the Raiders and hopefully the Oakland A's with their stadium coming as well. So it's, it's really cool to see all of that coming to Vegas. Um, Agreed. And you described in class, um, you just touched on this, so I don't know if you want to elaborate, but you described Vegas as a startup city. And I kind, of, I kind of agree for the whole reason of sports and everything as well. But what is exciting to you about the city or being at UNLV in the next few years? When I moved here in 2018, that was the description some of my departmental colleagues used to describe UNLV in Las Vegas, very much a startup. And five years later, I know I've been witness to so much transformation and growth within the university and within the local community. And to me, Las Vegas is now a city of entrepreneurship. It's so much more in addition to the strip, which obviously brings in, you know, unparalleled amounts of revenue. We don't pay state income tax because of that. I think, however, that our, you know, vision of what Las Vegas is has grown tremendously to include business with Zappos here. Um, We also have a number of tech companies that are taking up space in this area. If you pair that with sports, to me, Las Vegas is becoming a bigger jewel with so many different identity markers. And it's a privilege to live here and to experience it. I also just recently decided my next project is going to be on the NBA. And so I'm personally very excited to see what happens with that team. That's so cool. I was going to ask you what's next for you. And I don't know how much you want to reveal. It's completely up to you. But um, 
where would you like your research to take you and what or what impact would you hope to have on Las Vegas? You know, I have learned to own how much I have put UNLV in the mouths of senior leaders across the ecosystem of the NFL. And I've received tremendous support from different administrators and colleagues within the business school on the journey that that project has been. And I'm, you know, I always joke that UNLV gives me street cred, right, in the world of professional sports. Um, It opens doors in ways that I couldn't have predicted. The reason I decided to study the NBA next, so I was either trying to decide between the NBA and rappers and some of the rap music I listened to, which is straight gutter and trap, it was starting to feel a little harder on my soul these days. For my project on video models, I spent three years in the game and Mm -hmm. I decided I think I needed a setting that would feel a bit more, you know, optimistic, for Mm -hmm. lack of a better word. And the NBA, we know, is a player's league, guaranteed contracts, higher salaries, nonviolent sport, the WNBA, Mm -hmm. a woke commissioner, diversity in their coaching ranks more than the NFL. So for those factors, I decided that was the context that was calling to me. And I know even less about professional football than I do about professional basketball. I I mean, I virtually know nothing. So I'm looking forward to the journey it'll be for me as I embed myself in the NBA and and see what I uncover. I know. It's so curious to me how even if you might not know too much about something, just initiating yourself in that field is such a good challenge to take on. You grow so much from it. Myself in doing this podcast with almost no experience, um, I, I just had like an ambition for it. I just thought it would be such a good tool and I've been able to grow so much from it. Um, so I guess my advice to anyone listening is just don't underestimate opportunities and what they can mean for your life. Just meeting one one person can change everything as well. Just from my experience going to conferences and things like that. I have a few thoughts on that. You know, when I started the NFL project, there were one or two people who were not being naysayers. They were trying to give me a realistic preview who said, no one will talk to you. Right. 70 interviews later, including current coaches, a lot of people have talked to me. Wow. And in my opinion, It's about finding a way. And so some of the advice I would give your listeners is one, be very clear on your intention. My goal, my intention was to study the NFL. I wasn't a fan. I don't get starstruck by these guys. I'm not asking them for tickets to the game. Yes, they gift me swag and I wear it, but I don't know anything about their team's records. So one, be very clear about your intention and focus on that as your guiding anchor. And two, tell everyone what your goals are, what Mm -hmm. your plans are, what your passions are. One of my favorite stories about the NFL project is I was talking to the tech at my dentist about my research. She talked about the video model project first. And I said, well, now I'm transitioning to the NFL. My dentist texted me contacts in the NFL. My dentist is the bomb, by the way, shout out to Dr. Dean. And It's something I encourage people to do is tell everyone what you're passionate about. You cannot predict who will help you and in what form that help will show up. Keeping that passion, though, bottled up inside isn't going to facilitate those pathways. You also don't have to have a fully developed plan, right? I started out by saying I'm studying leadership in the NFL and doors started to open because Mm -hmm. people helped me. It's surprising how much people... How, how much how much like we 
it's a misnomer to think that to think that people are always cynical and are always going to be judging you and always closing doors for you when people genuinely i think do want to help you i think i'd like to think that there is some good in all of us that we can all connect to so when you come out and say things like that it's it's so interesting because i completely agree with that and i would love to have a whole podcast on the whole um bottling it up to coming out and saying people to what you're passionate about because there's so much fear in that you know there's so many emotions in going through how do you just start telling people what you're passionate about and how do you start accepting who you are and who you where you want to go and who, what you want to work in um, but i do agree that people can help you along the way um, and you already touched on my my last question so what would you say to someone in your footsteps probably all of all of that um so um what would you say to um your younger self is there anything now that you know that you would have wished you'd known then? Gosh, this question makes me emotional because the growth that I've experienced as a woman, as a researcher, as a human being because of the NFL, the league has completely transformed my life. And my college best friend, Nira Drow, shout out, mm -hmm. we talk about how much I trusted myself during the process of collecting this data and I've owned the skill sets that I have when it comes to relationship development and management. And those are innate to who I am. And if I look back to Pyle Sharma 14 months ago, mm -hmm. I would say, get it, girl. And you're, nice. you're about to blow up. I will also own as a concluding thought, and this does make me emotional, I'm the first person in the world to have entered the NFL and to have gotten the access that I have. And it makes me emotional because to truly see how, how people respond to you when you show up real, mm -hmm. that actually is where the gift is. So thank you, NFL. Yes, I want to personally congratulate you. That sounds amazing. And everybody who's listening, get up and clap right now. <laughs> That's awesome. So I asked this to Nadine as well, just a fun little concluding question. If you were in the EMBA program, where would you go for the international trip? Goodness, there are incredible places around the world. I would probably be drawn to a place like Cape Town mm -hmm. because of the intersection of the topics that I'm passionate about and that I value in my own life. So I think South Africa. Awesome. We'll put that on the list and hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we can all go there. So I want to thank you for being here today. I had such a stimulating, enriching conversation. Um, and uh, honestly, I, I encourage all of you to follow up on her research. You never know what, could, what you could find that could relate to your own life. And just, it's just so interesting to me. So thank you, Dr. Sharma, for being here today. My pleasure. And you can find me on LinkedIn if you'd like to stay in touch. Awesome. And for everyone listening, you can always follow, uh, you can always uh, find us on wherever you get your podcasts on Spotify or Apple podcasts. Just look for the pivot point. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening to the pivot point. You can follow us at pivot point UNLV on Twitter, all one word and hope you enjoyed the show.